What up, HyperChange? Welcome to another episode. We have HyperChat number 13, really exciting uh, content today. We're going to be talking about battery technology. The CEO of Nano One, uh, Dan Blondell. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's fantastic to be here. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much for the invite. Definitely. So your company, um, and this is going to be a bit of an educational interview for me. All of this is way over my head, frankly, and technologically. Uh, but Nano One, as far as I understand it, is a battery manufacturing technology company specifically focused on the way we produ you produce cathodes, that part of the battery. And you guys have a technology to basically create better and cheaper cathodes. And you're in the process of working with all these different electric vehicle and battery companies to commercialize that technology. Yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a great introduction, actually, uh, you're pretty much bang on. So yeah, so maybe you could describe, you know, what is essentially the product that you guys have? Why do all these companies and partners want to work with you? Essentially, um, what we have developed is a way to make cathode materials that reduces the cost of manufacturing the materials and improves the performance in, 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 a, in a variety of different ways. Now, that's, uh, uh, there's a lot of unpacking to do there to sort of give you the details. But that's essentially the, the the core component. We are a process uh, tech. We're a, we're a technology process innovator. Um, we have a business model that's about developing the intellectual property, the patents, the know-how, all of that stuff, and the engineering, and licensing that out to uh, to players in the in the space. And we have some of those partnerships already in place, um, uh, trying to gestate that into a sort of commercial reality. Uh, I can uh, I certainly can dive into more detail how we how we save costs on on the materials and uh, and such, and I'm sure we will over the next half hour. Yeah, and and first I'd like to start. Maybe you have 13 patents, 30 pending on this technology. I'm kind. I'm always curious, like, who's the mad scientist behind this? Was this developed in a lab somewhere? Or, like, what's the story behind how this tech was developed? Yeah, it's interesting. This technology came out of, I've been involved since the beginning, so I'm a founder. And uh, this technology came out of a, a mining play in South America. And uh, when that this would have been back in the 2000, kind of 9, 2010 era, when there was the first kind of spike in lithium and excitement about uh, lithium ion batteries uh, for electric vehicles. And uh, uh, it, was, it came from a, a chemist who, who understood the space very well, had been involved in lithium ion batteries and was consulting uh, to my business partner uh, in the lithium mine in Bolivia. And it was that. That deal um, went the way it went, and uh, but we spun this whole kind of idea out into uh, what has become Nano One. So it, it actually came from uh, a scientist who was very, very well sort of versed in, in the in the space, and and the bulk of the patents we have right now came from that original the original manifestation. Of course, we we've had many more uh, innovations since then, and we improve on the patents, and we continue to continue to uh, file more patents. So uh, what we've got 14, 15, 14 pat 13, 14 patents out right now. And they, uh, they largely stem from that original innovation. But uh, of course, we brought a lot of improvements to the table as well. And, and they, they cover things like the, like the process. Uh, that's how you make the materials. And they also cover the materials themselves. So we found uh, sort of innovative materials, uh, an innovative way, let's say, to describe nickel manganese cobalt based materials or nickel cobalt aluminate materials um, for high energy applications. And we've patented those. And they're covered in, in most of the Asian countries, in North America, and soon to be in Europe as well. Excellent. And so let's dive into the tech. Um, a little bit nervous about this, yeah. but you know, explain like like what actually makes your cathodes better than I guess the industry status quo, and you know, what's the tech behind that? Well, I, I brought some props along. I know you got you're Amazing. really excited when I told you about this earlier. So 
um, we have to we have to go back to I have to kind of explain how cathode materials are made today. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of really kind of try and make dumb it down to something relatively simple. But it goes back to the rock or or, or where you get the lithium from. Whether it comes out of a brine or out of a out of a, out of a hard rock application. And here's a here's a piece of uh, um, spodumene. So this is uh, this is basically a source of lithium in a, in a hard rock sense. And this will get crushed and ground and mailed into a powder, into a, like a gravel, and then eventually dissolved and usually in some kind of a sulfuric acid and then baked in a, in a furnace in order to get out, the, get out the lithium. And eventually that gets purified into a lithium powder, uh, which uh, is really just a white powder, like you see here. So this is uh, a little hard to see through the... Wow, amazing props. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And, and so that's, uh, that's one of the precursors that goes in. Now, the same thing happens with nickel. Now, this is a much heavier prop, actually, because this, <laughs> this is actually nickel ore. And uh, same thing, this will get crushed, ground, mailed, dissolved in acids, and, and, and eventually um, spun in either into pure nickel metal or into salts of nickel. Um, and here's a, here's a really, I picked a really nice bright green one for you, um, but this is, a, this is a nickel salt. And uh, this is a you know, very, very pure. And this will come together with lithium to make a, uh, a let's say, a lithium nickel oxide uh, battery. The same goes with, with, uh, with cobalt, another pretty color. This one's purple. Um, it can be different salts of different colors. Uh, iron uh, in a lithium iron phosphate battery. So there's iron. And, and these are really all the precursors that go into it. So what happens today in, in, in cathode manufacturing is they'll take, uh, let's say, uh, let's take NMC because that's really the most hotly discussed uh, material out there. So that's got nickel and cobalt, the purple one here, and uh, manganese, which um, I don't have on my desk right now, but it's a brown color. And and these will get typically get processed in a um, in a chemical process. They'll get combined uh, together, usually as sulfates, in a, and it's in a very um, it's a, it's a kind of an acoustic environment, um, and they uh, and then they basically get precipitated together in kind of into a, a, a large kind of cylindrical powdered uh, form, and uh, and then it gets dried as a powder, a mixed powder, and then that will go to a cathode producer. who will take that take that precursor, will take this mixture here, and mix it with lithium, and they'll grind and mill it together into a another fine powder. And that, uh, and then that gets put into the furnace, and in a furnace, it gets cooked just like a ceramic material, just like clay does in, in, a, in a ceramic process. It gets cooked into a ceramic powder, and essentially, it comes out looking like this. Uh, I get very hard to see here, but this black powder you see here looks like coffee grounds if you were able to take a close look, and that's a cathode powder. Um, and those are all the steps that typically happen, except that with, a, with a really, the really modern uh, advanced materials, um, uh, like Tesla uses, let's say, in their, in their, in their NCA, or like, uh, like any of the high nickel NMC materials, they require a protective coating on all those little particles of powder. And sometimes it's aluminum, sometimes it's titanium, there's zirconium, there's many different types of coatings that people are applying. And that has to be done in a secondary process. So you make this powder, you, you soak it in the, in, the, in the required material, you dry it, and you fire it again in the furnace to get this nice hard crunchy coating around each one of the little pieces of particle. And that's typically how a cathode's made. Now, once you once you get to this powder, um, it just gets it gets mixed with solvents and binders and made into an ink, a very thick ink, and spread onto a piece of foil, dried, compressed, and uh, and that forms your whole sort of electrode, your cathode electrode. And then the same thing happens with the anode with respect to graphite. They get assembled with a 
uh, with a separator in between them and either rolled or folded into a, uh, into a battery. So that's kind of taking you from the rock all the way to the battery. Awesome. I love it. And so where do you guys fit in uh, to that su supply chain or what you just described? So we, we fit in where all those precursors get, get put together. Um, effectively, what we do is we get rid of this, this, this uh, interim process of taking the cobalt and the nickel and the manganese, let's say, mixing them together up front in a process before going to the cathode guys who mix it with lithium. So what we do is we take all of these in their in their in their in a, in a pure in a raw form as as nickel, manganese, cobalt, lithium, and we also take the coating, which I don't have a sample of right here, and it basically goes. Whoops! Right. I'm gonna stop juggling those, and it all goes into it all goes into one container and, and and one one pot, and we do all that mixture at once. So we eliminate that kind of middleman who's doing the nickel, manganese, and cobalt mixing, and we we basically put the lithium in there and the coating. So we take the precursor, the cathode, and the coating process, and we put it all into one. And that uh, obviously it simplifies uh, the manufacturing, eliminates the number of points of error, eliminates, it, it helps with yield because every step reduces yield. There's a whole bunch of factors in there that, that, uh, that leads to uh, lower costs and, and, and it, yeah. improved quality. And we can get into that in a little bit, but I, I, does that make sense? Yeah, the first thing I was thinking is like, you take away that step, like time, and cost are the first thing yes. you're saving. So, yes. and really cool. And so in terms of business model, you guys aren't actually selling this, you're selling the process. Is that right? That, like you're licensing out this IP. Yes, that's correct. We, so, we, we, we plan to license it out. You know, we should be clear. We don't, we don't have a license deal yet in place, but we're getting close on, on some fronts. And you do have a manufacturing facility um, that is being set up. Is that to like prove and validate this on a small scale or? Yes, so we uh, we operate on a number of different scales. We actually we have a pilot facility, and it was built uh, built. It's been built and operational for two years, and and so at, at the bench level, we'll do reactions in you know containers this size, and then on a smaller pilot scale, we'll do something you know maybe a ten liter, a ten liter or twenty liter kind of con container, and then at the pilot scale, we're we're up at upwards of eight hundred liters, and and really that pilot scale is meant to do a couple things. The first thing. Uh, that comes to mind for anyone in the, in the sort of the chemistry and chemical engineering world is does it scale? So when you put it in a big container, does heat flow the same way? Does the reaction proceed at the same pace? And you have to prove that. And, and so that's what it was primarily built to do was actually de-risk that. And, and, it, and it works great. So are, as planned, uh, the technology scales very well into these large vessels. Uh, the second thing it does, it allows us to make larger amounts of material for testing. So, uh, you know, if you're going to send this stuff off to uh, a battery manufacturer, they don't use grams of material for testing. They use tens of kilograms. So we have to be able to, we have to be able to provide larger volumes of material. And then the third thing the, the pilot does, it allows us to prove out the engineering. So the, the capital costs of the, of the equipment and the operating costs. So how much energy does it use? What kind of, what's the, what are the balance of, of, of chemicals that have to go in? Do they work at that scale? So that allows us to design a full scale plant, which we're, we're, we're easily at that stage right now. We understand how all the equipment works and how much energy takes up and what are the, what are the consumables? What are the, uh, what are the input materials? And, and when you have all that in place, you can say, okay, well, it's going to cost you $50 million to build a plant and it's going to cost you, you know, 60 million a year to run it or something like that. And that's, uh, that's kind of the stage we're at um, with, with some of the, the cathode materials we're working on. Really cool.
And so you guys have signed a number of very interesting commercial agreements in the past year or two. Um, so I'm wondering if maybe, I know a couple of them, but maybe you could just tell us which ones you're sort of most excited about and are moving forward the fastest to actually bring this technology to market. So uh, probably the most prominent name we're working with is Volkswagen. Um, uh, and, and with Volkswagen, we're working on a number of different fronts. Um, the, the really the, the first biggest initiative is really is on high energy density, uh, materials that uh, would be used in a you know luxury long-range electric vehicle and not dissimilar to, to 811 or, or NCA or those kinds of things where you've got a, got a lot of nickel in there you're, you're trying to reduce the amount of cobalt trying to thrift out the cobalt but at the same time you're trying to sort of maximize uh, safety and, and and energy density because there's always a compromise between the two so uh, so we're working very actively with them. They, they're really excited about our technology, uh, of course. Um, uh, that's what their kind of relationship is about. But we're trying to co-develop a new generation of cathode materials that will go into their next generation batteries. So when, we, when I think about the ID3, the electric vehicle they recently unveiled, is that something that you guys are trying to get your technology into? Or are we talking about a next generation? It would, it would likely be next generation. I mean, any of these, any of these, uh, any innovations in cathode materials, um, it's going to take, it's going to require testing, you know, obviously at the laboratory level, at the cell level, at the battery pack level, and and uh, and a, you know, considerable amount of work. But the, uh, it does take, uh, it, it will take years, literally, to 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 get this into a commercial battery, assuming success. And let's talk about Nano One, the the company, for a second. You guys are based in British Columbia. Um, you listed on the Toronto ex Stock Exchange, I believe, three or four years ago. Yeah, that's correct. On the Venture Exchange, so there's there's two exchanges, but there's the Venture and and the, and then the big boards. But we're on the what's called the TSX Venture Exchange. And what's the primary method? You guys have this really cool like timeline chart on your website, but I'm curious if you could kind of walk us through what's the method of of financing and why have you guys chosen that? Because I think there's a unique thing where you guys have raised a little bit of equity, but also have like this option grant program. Oh, okay. Well, so um, uh, it, it's quite typical in Canada when you're raising money, certainly in the public markets, is to issue warrants um, uh, with your with your uh, uh, with your equity. So um, I'll, I'll walk you through what we did from a, from a timeline point of view, and then it'll make sense. So, so we were private initially when we first sort of spun this thing out of the Bolivian mine. I spoke of it. And we raised $3 million privately. And then in 2015, we did a, we did a public offering on what's called a reverse takeover. So we, we had vended ourselves into an existing shell of a public company. And we raised $4 million in, during that transaction. And, uh, and then we also did a, a we, we also had $4 million of warrants issued. And that allowed anyone with those warrants to purchase shares at a, at a given price um, you know, for a two year period. And we largely took all those down. So we, we raised another $4 million in warrants over the following two years. And then in 2017, we, uh, we did a private placement, which basically means we issued a whole bunch more shares uh, to the tune of $4 million. Um, and that, uh, that brought $4 million of cash. We issued shares in response to that. And again, there were warrants issued uh, on those to, to, this, to the people who bought those shares. And then we, we recently closed um, half of those at the beginning of September. So we brought in another million dollars on the back of those. So that's all the equity we was raised. In total, and that's those about- those actually exercised a slightly higher than the market price, if I read that correctly. 
just ever so slightly. So the, the ones in, in August, yeah, would have been done kind of at a, at a buck. Uh, you know, they were, they were in Canadian dollars. Uh, they were dollar twenty five, and they were basically they were basically being bought roughly to, between a dollar twenty and a dollar twenty five. Cool. And, yeah, and I guess the reason why someone would do that, and, and partly because we we also offered an incentive program where we uh, we gave them a dollar sixty warrant in exchange for doing that. So all of these guys now have an ability to buy, to buy the stock at a dollar sixty for the next year. And the reason why that's attractive is if the stock goes to five dollars, that right to buy it for a dollar sixty is all of a sudden extremely accretive, and that's, yeah, yeah. So, so at that point, it'd be worth three forty, right? So yeah. And so, and the reason I kind of bring this up, the nerdy financing part is because, you know, you're a micro cap stock, like very traditionally risky as an asset class, but I've actually, you know, and I met you about a year ago at the LD micro conference, shout out to Chris Lahiji, but so I've been following, but I've actually been very impressed with the, the minimal dilution and the, the insiders actually putting up capital to fund the company. Like, I think that's very rare in the micro cap space. And I kind of like, so it's easy to separate like a lot of bad companies from good ones based on that. And so I've kind of been impressed with the steadily rising share price as well. Um, but then on the flip side, I kind of want to play devil's advocate where I'm like looking at this. I personally don't understand the technology well enough to, or I'm trying to, to become an investor yet. But, yeah. you know, I look at this, okay, we have about a year's worth of cash, 75 million market cap fully diluted, um, but there's no revenue, like $5 million grant here, $500,000 contract here. Like, how does the investment case make sense for, for, I guess, like the Nano One equity, if you were talking to people interested in making an investment? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I think, um, uh, you know, without making comps to, you know, a, a bunch of unicorns out there that yeah, are, you don't want that. That's the same question too. I think in our case, the licensing model is really the key here. So, um, you know, our, our burn right now is probably, we're, we're between four and $5 million a year is what we spend at Nano One. Um, so we're rel relatively modest burn as a company. We've got uh, we've got 30 employees. Six of them are students, but uh, kind of give you a sense of what the what the company's size is. Um, we have very modest uh, capital uh, equipment needs because we've already built our pilot plant. We you know we're making modifications and changes and stuff like that. Um, but the key is. When we land a license deal, um, all of a sudden you're starting to talk about the, you know the first deal, the first plant, the, the first line that comes in is going to start generating you know, easily five to ten million dollars a year for the company, and some of these uh, expansion plans we're looking at would generate sixty million dollars a year. So we wipe out our expenses very very fast, and and that's where the that's where the value lies. It's just that the, the the value is all up front right now in terms of what we're building. And then uh, once that first commercial deal comes in, we're not like the, the rest of the unicorns who aren't gonna make money for 10 years. We make money right away as soon as the deal comes in place. And so it's very, very capital efficient. And so yes. I guess the investment thesis is like, we have this base of fixed expenses. Once these IP agreements come in, we don't need to scale costs and we're just getting all this 100% margin revenue. Uh, and it could be very profitable very quickly, I guess. That's correct, yes. Awesome. And so what sort of milestones um, should we be looking for going forward to sort of track the commercialization progress of some of these? Well, so um, we talked a bit about Volkswagen. I think, I think we should also look to the, the, um, the other uh, very exciting deal we've got going in China. So yeah. lithium iron phosphate um, uh, is really, it's probably the safest, longest lasting, cheapest sort of lithium ion battery out there. However, it doesn't have the energy density to drive a long range luxury electric vehicle. So, uh, you know, today it probably it's used, uh, used primarily in the vehicle space, it's used primarily in 200 kilometer range and down in, in China. 
and uh, uh, but primarily it's industrial use. So it'll be in, in, in electric buses, forklifts, fleet vehicles. And the reason is, partly from, the, from a safety point of view, I think that's fairly obvious. Um, if you've got a bus full of people, um, uh, that battery needs to be extremely safe. But the, the fact that the battery can be fully, it can be deep cycled and it can be deep cycled four, five, six, ten thousand times means that the, the, the purchaser of the battery, the, the bus company, gets incredibly good uh, a total, it's a very good total cost of ownership in that battery. So they're not, they're not driving around, uh, it means they can charge and discharge the battery every day fully. So they're not carrying around extra battery weight and they're not carrying around extra cost all day. Uh, like most people are in their consumer vehicles. Uh, most, you know, anyone with an electric car today is probably leaving 75% of the energy, you know, um, uh, in the battery every day. And as consumers, we're willing to pay for that, but the in, in industrial side isn't. Um, they have, they want, uh, you know, they want very good sort of capital, uh, efficient use of their capital. And lithium iron phosphate kind of fits that bill very well. Um, so that gives you a sense of why it's an important material, and we believe it will be an important material going going forward. Um, the the deal we have in China uh, is with a company called Puli Technology, and they're one of the major producers. So are let's say BYD in China, another very well, the largest largest electric vehicle company in the world, and they make more buses and, and cars added up than anyone else. Uh, very very large uh, and successful company, mostly based on lithium iron phosphate, and uh, we, uh, if you go back to the, the, my explanation of how we reduce costs, we've basically taken that, uh, we've taken that iron and sulfate uh, precursor mixture and we've, we've taken it out of the loop. We go, we go directly to a lithium, this is, this, we go to a directly to a lithium iron phosphate precursor. So this is lithium iron phosphate and the carbon coating that, that's required, all mixed in one and eliminates that step up front, eliminates the second carbon coating step in the back and it drives down cost. By driving down costs in this, we believe we can actually improve the adoption rate, improve the competitiveness of our partner in China, and uh, um, and we believe it's kind of in the range of a thirty to sixty million dollar opportunity just just uh, just with them and the and the space in China. Wow! And so, what's the current state of like? getting that to market or developing that technology so it speaks to your question about what are the, what are the next catalysts so um, yeah. so they we, we've been working with them effectively for a year uh, under under agreement for for eight months now since January and what we've been doing with them is optimizing the process to meet their specifications and uh, identifying the sources of iron and phosphate um, in China that will uh, will give us the, the cost uh, reductions we're looking for and and we've done that we've tested those uh, we've run them internally here we're very happy with the results they're very happy with the results we're now in uh, we're now going to be in China over the next uh, next few months nailing down that supply chain because what the most important thing here is that iron and phosphate can be supplied for this manufacturing process for the next 10 years at a reasonable cost. Mm -hmm. And so once we nail that down, and we think we can do that within before the end of the year, we think then a commercial deal becomes, uh, becomes uh, much more visible uh, because it basically locks down the major costs of making these materials. Excellent. And so um, I, I kind of want to move to the elephant in the room, at least for my subscribers and me, which yeah, is yeah. Tesla. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, I'm just kind of curious, uh, you guys put out a press release about a week or two ago, um, at the same time that Tesla, uh, the million mile battery research paper from Jeff Don came out. 
So yes. I'm, I'm curious what about this research from Jeff Don made you guys put out a press release? Why was it a big deal? It's sort of a validation of your technology. Well, actually, it's interesting. So Jeff Don's paper followed on the heels of a patent that we got uh, in, in August. Um, that, uh, and that patent was, uh, we, we actually, we, we'd also um, received that patent in Korea as well, but it came out in the U.S. Um, uh, in, in the August timeframe. And that, that patent describes the uh, type of materials, cathode materials we make, which are essentially uh, single crystal. So for anyone that's read that paper, they'll realize that single crystal cathode materials uh, are are part of the foundation for this long-lasting battery. So uh, we felt that it, it actually it, it very much uh, uh, sort of put some wind in our sails and, 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 and uh, justified the work and the strategic approach that we're taking. It's the same, that same, uh, those same kind of single crystals are at the basis of the relationships we have with Volkswagen and, and a few other unannounced OEMs in, in Europe as well. So they are very exciting, uh, uh, certainly a very exciting opportunity. And and I think that's a at, at the really at the at the at the center of all that Jeff Don stuff. That's the that's the key for us is that the single crystal materials can last longer. I certainly, I'd like to I can, I can certainly walk you through how we view the Jeff Don paper and and how that has an impact on Tesla. Definitely. And at first, I'm curious: is the single crystal material is that different than like? Is there a multi-crystal material for like the 2170 cells that are currently in Tesla's? Like I'm trying to figure out, is this a different technology? Yeah. So, so we didn't really get into the, um, uh, we didn't get really get into the performance aspects of, of how you make these materials. But the, the way I described it before, right, we have this precursor of, of uh, you know, cobalt and nickel, these pretty colors. Um, when they make those materials, what they tend to do is they precipitate them into these really dense spherical powder particles. And within each sphere, there's all these kind of um, uh, grains of crystals in there, grains of particles. It's kind of like if you broke a rock open, you know, you'd see a whole bunch of different, uh, the, the rock is not, it's not uniform. And so it's got all these grains in different directions. And, and um, uh, that's, uh, and then they, when they send it to the cathode uh, producer, the cathode producer cooks it with lithium and lithium is diffuses into all those structures and forms the right crystals. And, and but, but what we call that a polycrystalline powder particle. So it's, it could have hundreds or thousands of, of little crystals inside that, that, uh, that uh, particle. And what happens um, when, you, when you press that into a battery, um, it, it, can, it, those, it can break open and crack open along the grain boundaries. And as you cycle lithium in and out, actually things expand and contract. So you're trying to stuff lithium between these layers and, and it basically expands. And as you pull the lithium out, it contracts. And as it does that, it stresses all these grain boundaries and the particle breaks open. And particularly uh, when you get into high nickel materials where you're trying to protect the nickel and the manganese uh, from a reaction with the electrolyte at those voltages, um, uh, the, the, the coating starts to break apart. And as that coating breaks apart, um, the, the battery starts to degrade much faster and, and actually can, it can become a quite a critical issue. Uh, it can lead to a catastrophic failure, but more often than not, it just leads to very fast degradation of the battery. And, and um, so Tesla's uh, NCA uh, materials are made exactly that way. And they have these polycrystalline uh, uh, materials like everyone else's uh, sort of NMC materials are largely that way. They're these polycrystalline particles. When we make our material, when we combine everything in one and, and, the, and the process produces um, powders, our powders are actually, they're smaller. It's not as big a particle. It's a smaller particle, but it's purely crystalline. There's no facets inside it. There's no grain boundaries. It's just one 
it's one powder, uh, it's one little um, uh, speck of very, very angular uh, crystal structure. And so when we coat those, um, um, there's no grain boundaries to break apart, and therefore the coating stays intact. And therefore the uh, material uh, will last longer as you cycle it. And as you press the battery together, there's nothing to crack apart. And, and that's essentially what Jeff Don showed. He showed that if you, if you use these single crystal powders, which he got, he got from some uh, manufacturer in China, so they're not, they don't, it's, not, it's not owned by Tesla, he basically ordered a dry cell. And that dry cell had a cathode made with, uh, with single crystal powders. Uh, and the method they typically use in China for that's very expensive, so it's, uh, it's, it's more complex and, 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 and more expensive than the way we do it, and, uh, which is why you don't see a lot of commercial adoption of it yet. And, and the anode was, uh, was largely uh, a fairly standard anode and a, and a standard separator. And he just filled that, those dry cells with different electrolytes. That's what Jeff Don's lab is exploring. They're exploring high voltage electrolytes and longer performing electrolytes. And then he closed it shut and, 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 and ran it under very controlled test environments. And he was able to show that you could get up to 4,000 cycles out of some of these batteries. So for us, and it's a long story, I apologize if I'm being No, that was excellent, excellent. Really okay. appreciate that. So, so for us, it, it, it validates this, the idea that a single crystal can last really, really long and actually puts quite a bit of wind in our sails. So we were, we were really excited to see that. It's fantastic research. It's a really good paper, and it, uh, it really kind of lays out what was done. Um, there's nothing, you know, uh, what's innovative about it is really the test procedures and the, and the, and the experimental work that was done on it. Um, the, the, the materials in it are, are largely well-known and well-understood, and although very expensive, um, what he's shown is if you take the very best of all materials and you, and you combine them together in a very carefully put-together uh, cell, and it doesn't need to be a pouch cell, it could be a cylindrical cell. Um, uh, that's, not really a, that's not really a key part of it. But, but if, when you put all this stuff together and you're very, very carefully tested, you can actually get these incredible amount of cycles out of a battery. And that's the benchmark he's trying to set. He says, this is what we should all be aspiring to. This may be cost ineffective right now, but this is what we should all be aspiring to. Totally. And, and I think the biggest thing to hit home for me on that is like, why does that matter? Because it changes the economic equation of they specifically cite this battery can do over a million miles which is far more than anything on the market. So if you're doing, and they even cite robo-taxi in the paper, like they literally yes. say that. So if you're talking about an application where it's over the lifetime of the vehicle, the total cost of ownership is very dependent on the life of the battery. So if we double the battery, we made a huge adva it, like advancement in the cost profile of electric vehicles relative to the in internal combustion engine. And then you think about that same kind of like economic equation for the grid storage. They say they, this could last two decades. So I think for me, it's exciting of like, like electric vehicle fan i'm like wow this next generation technology is i already think in many ways a tesla is a lot cheaper to own than you realize because of the maintenance and, and gas savings um and just electric vehicles in general but now that they're going to last so much longer the economic equation is pushing even more in their favor in their direction so on, on that note i'm kind of curious like you know what's your take on just the ev market as a whole and the adoption that we've seen because up until this point at least in the us it's pretty clear tesla's dominating and market share they're really driving the adoption so i'm curious like is that how you see it continuing for a while or do you think that'll change and some of these other players will help facilitate that market share oh i think it'll definitely change i think most of the you know the, the large automakers have been waiting biding their time um they don't want to cannibalize their existing sales and and you know they've been very careful about it obviously uh companies like volkswagen have jumped in you know jumped right into the deep end now um 
on it, and and I certainly wouldn't uh, uh, I wouldn't bet against them. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of good work going on there, but um, you know I I think it's it's important to understand that. Um, the, the demographic who are largely buying electric vehicles there are people who are spending you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 thousand dollars a year on a car and and they can um, they can afford a, a large battery that has a long range and that will last a long time. And the problem is as you scale down into entry level, if you want to get down to the twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollar car, um, that battery is going to the, the, the basically that battery is going to get charged and discharged way more often, and it has to be able to last. It has to be able to last beyond a thousand cycles. A thousand cycles is fine if you're charging effectively once every ten days, which is you could probably put most Teslas in that range. Most people drive 50 kilometers a day and it's a 500 kilometer battery. And uh, so it's a, it's basically a 10 day charge cycle on that battery. And so a thousand cycles, that's uh, 10,000 days. That's a lot of years. And, uh, but if you now, if you have to charge and discharge it every second day, it starts to make a big difference. And, and the key is to find a battery that lasts longer, uh, that can do that and provide the range. And right now, uh, the NMC materials are the only ones that can really pack enough range into that battery to make a difference. And, and you know, so what I see is on the, on the, um, and certainly on the longer range luxury or quasi luxury uh, electric vehicle space, you're going to start to see uh, the, the price come down. A longer lasting battery will give uh, the uh, EV companies more comfort on warranty because warranty is really what drives the price of all this. And so that as they get more comfortable with warranty, they'll derate the battery less and you'll be able to squeeze more out of it and that'll help them drive the cost down. So uh, that's a big part of it. Um, uh, most people don't understand that batteries are all derated. Um, they're derated. You, you build a really big battery and then you only use a component of it. Yeah. Right. And, and you stay away from the, the safety edges on the battery. You don't charge it to its full voltage or down to its lowest voltage. You, uh, you work within a safety range uh, that meets your warranty specs and meets your safety specs. And, so, or sorry. so that's on, that, that's on the, that's really on what I see on the kind of longer range luxury vehicle, but let's take the flip side. And this is something that very few people in North America think about that everyone wants to drive 500 kilometers. Um, in China, one of the largest, one of the most uh, popular selling vehicles is, is something that's 150 or 180 kilometers a day. And that's largely lithium iron phosphate. BAIC sell a car there that's probably somewhere close to eight to $12,000 for an electric vehicle that does 100, 180 kilometers a day. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So, so, and I think, so, so from the, from the bottom end of the market, um, you start to see very different dynamics because there, if you're going to have a car that's kind of a lower range, like that, you got to be able to charge it more often and you need a battery that lasts longer. And that's kind of where the lithium iron phosphate comes in. Um, that battery, that battery material has a really heavy duty cycle on it because of, because of that, and you need a, need a longer lasting battery. Now if NMC can then come in and, and do that as well. Uh, there's a really some really exciting uh, dynamics that come out of that. So we you know, we have to get we have to get over the cost uh, uh, the, the relative cost of manufacturing those batteries, but that will come with time. And it sounds like it's kind of just like the trade off of batteries. There's lots of you know you're it's the like I think I heard you say this in one of your interviews. It's like a game of trade offs of like do you want less range or yeah. to last longer, and that's kind of the game. And we'll see different battery form factors for different use cases, kind yes. of like what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, with different form factors and different chemistries as well. Uh, you know, they're, uh, you know, it's it, it's coming out. You've got the nickel, manganese, cobalt based batteries, um, uh, and of course, everyone's trying to thrift up the cobalt. And and there's there's trade offs there with safety and, and, and durability. Totally. Uh, 
but um, uh, and, and and then there's lithium iron phosphate, which really has you know more industrial or very very cost sensitive applications anywhere where where the cost is driving the decision rather than let's say a, a luxury vehicle where brand is actually driving a lot of the decision. Um, um, it'll it makes a lot of sense. Definitely. And so um, one thing that I say or my research has pointed to, and I'm curious how you react to this statement, is that Tesla is three to five years ahead in battery technology. Um, so, you know, they have the longest range EV on the market, the efficiency ratio, something that I've talked about on my channel, basically the amount of range you're getting per kilowatt in the battery is much better in Tesla's. So there's lots of clues pointing to their battery technology being significantly ahead. Is that something you would agree with? And uh, do you think it's something they could keep up? Well, I, actually, I don't, um, I don't completely agree with that. Um, um, when I look at the uh, sort of uh, kilowatt per uh, what was that you said the um like amount of miles of range per kilowatt hours in the past yeah the, the range per kilowatt i i i uh, i saw some recent numbers on the on the model three and it's no different than my chevy bolt actually so uh, but it's interesting you don't see it on their slides um so that never comes up <laughs> so uh i don't um uh, I don't, I don't completely, but I, I do agree. I mean, they, they've got a big head start on everybody, and I think where Tesla really, really um, do very well is in a battery management system. Their ability to thermally control the battery and uh, uh, and and actually build, a, you know, and, and and build and sell a very large battery into the marketplace. I mean, they have range because they sell a big battery. Uh, they 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 have the longest range vehicles because they were able to sell a ninety kilowatt hour battery into the marketplace or seventy at, the, at its lowest in the, in the in the original sort of Model S's. Um, the uh, the Model Three uh, definitely has has very good range, but I think the the range on other vehicles is comparable uh, to some degree. So yeah, they, they're, there's going to be a lot of catch up still to uh, to catch up to their I guess to their branding to the to the position they have in North America certainly. But um, in terms of their advantage on the battery technology, I think uh, I think others will uh, will be not very far behind them at all. Gotcha. I mean, so just to just to be clear, though, I'm talking about efficiency ratio, kilowatt hour divided by range divided by weight. Yes. Tesla has like yes. a 20% advantage. So I'm seeing Chevy Bolt 60 kilowatt battery, 238 miles of range. Tesla Model 3 standard range plus 50 kilowatt battery, yet 240. So. I kind of wanted to push back on your comment just because I the data is that Tesla is actually better on on that basis. But um, I guess the biggest reason that gives me comfort as an investor is yeah. what how are these auto companies structured? They're outsourcing everything. They're hitting up third party suppliers to buy their batteries. Their cars, the Chevy Bolt, is built by LG more than it's built yeah. by GM. So I yeah. think this vertical integration is allowing a pace of innovation at Tesla's battery technology level that is going to make it very hard for people to keep up. Um, or so I'm curious, like, or maybe you think it's an advantage that these other companies are letting other people build batteries. Um, but I'm kind of curious how you see that. Cause I see Tesla taking a very different vertically integrated approach. And to me, that's why they've been ahead. Well, certainly as, as, as a, as a company that started in the industry, um, they needed to be vertically integrated and, and they took that and ran with it and did an incredible job. Um, uh, you know, it's really an unbelievable vehicle that they put together, uh, or series of vehicles they put together. But, but you know, uh, they're not the only vertically integrated example. The most vertically integrated uh, electric car company in the world is BYD. 
so BYD, uh, and they were at it earlier than anyone, um, basically they, they make their own cathode materials and anode materials and their own foils and their own cells. Um, uh, and they go right through to the bus and the car and everything else. And they had to do that because they were very early in the game. So the, the supply chain wasn't there. And so they developed the supply chain themselves. Tesla was the same thing. They didn't have the battery what they wanted. So they, uh, they developed the battery themselves. They developed the whole uh, architecture themselves, but they still outsourced the cells. The cells are outsourced to Panasonic um, and, uh, and, and possibly some other vendors in the future. So uh, they're not quite as vertically integrated as BYD. But I think traditionally, as, as, um, as these, as these um, markets become more generic, I think, across different car companies, you will start to see uh, more outsourcing of these things. As, as, a, as a company that starts at the beginning, yes, they have to do it, and that's what gives them their advantage. But even, even a company like BYD is starting to outsource some of their uh, sort of components that they realize that, well, you know what, we need um, uh, we can't make all of our own cathode material and all of our own animal materials. We're going to start buying it from other people. We're not necessarily, we might going to outsource some of our cell manufacturing that we're, that, you know, we don't necessarily bring an advantage to. So realizing where you actually have the advantage of not having the advantage is going to be key. As more players come into the market, I think those components will get commoditized and as they get commoditized, they'll get pushed out to, uh, to, you know, tier one suppliers. Excellent. And uh, just to kind of build on that, one of my theories is that China will become a significant exporter of EVs starting in a handful of years. And I see the government putting in, piece, putting in place the pieces to do that. So I'm curious, do you think that's a correct thesis in terms of, okay, if we have 20 million EVs sold a year in five to 10 years, are we having most of these coming out of China or are they built regionally? That's a good question. I, I think they, they, I think that the cars are going to be built regionally um, uh, again. At, at, so it won't be like our smartphones, where it's kind of. No, I think I think the shipping costs and the and the uh, and everything. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think the 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 way cars are made today, which is mostly regionally, um, is going to is going to still persist. It's hard. It's hard for me to. But, but you know what? I'm no. Uh, I'm not a, an expert in automotive supply chain. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> you're definitely talking to the wrong guy on that. But I, I it's hard. It'd be hard for me to believe that that would happen. I do think that um, the batteries will probably be uh, to some extent will be regionally um, sourced uh, wherever there are uh, wherever let's say cathodes are made in raw materials. So there'll be some battery and raw materials or input materials. Uh, that will be have to be co-located, uh, particularly if we're working with some of these sort of high nickel materials like we are seeing is because they're so sensitive to air and handling and all that kind of stuff. So they, they have to be close to the source that they're going to get put into. But So when Tesla says they're going into mining, do you think that's a joke or not? Well, um, yeah, I, I can't see Tesla mining. I can see Tesla securing the supply of lithium and cobalt and nickel, but but the same is true of all other auto manufacturers. I mean, they, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna secure sources of every screw and fastener in their car as well. Um, and if there's a if there's a chance that the um, the production of steel is going to prevent them from having the screws to put the car together. They'll, they'll go in and make sure that that supply <laughs> is secure. And so they'll invest in that space if they have to. And, you know, and Tesla, Tesla's no different that way. But them getting into mining, uh, that's a, uh, they've certainly made, you know, they've, they've made some calls on different companies to, uh, to try and secure the supply of lithium and, and cobalt and presumably nickel. But uh, that's no different than any of the other, other auto suppliers. They just want to make sure that they, uh, if they, if they bank on a certain platform for their battery that needs, you know, X amount of lithium, nickel and cobalt, they're going to be able to get that as a secure supply for the next 10 years and their pricing is, is nailed down.
Gotcha. And so I have one last kind of moonshot question. Um, I see the development of battery technology, this robo taxi million mile battery kind of coming together with the autonomy thesis. You know, that's my big sort of invest two big disruptions. We're going to EVs and we're going to autonomy is do you guys think or care about the autonomous piece at all? Because to me, that starts to really change how consumers are buying vehicles. And you know, way down the supply chain is kind of affecting the companies you're working with. But do you just think that's too far off? Do you not take Tesla seriously? I'm kind of just curious your thoughts on that. I, I think autonomy is coming and, and I think there'll be different levels, but I think the, the adoption might be a little slower than everyone wishes, but um, uh, it doesn't really affect us. Um, the reality is a, an autonomous car is going to require more power. You're going to need a 4,000 kilowatt, uh, sorry, you're, going to, you're, going to need a, uh, you're going to need four kilowatts of, of, of energy to run the, the processor in the car. And, and as well as, you know, turn the wheels and everything like that. So it needs a bigger battery, it needs more power. So, uh, so for us, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a boon. I don't, I don't really see any impact um, on us at all. So I, I'm certainly, uh, I'm certainly would be, I would welcome uh, uh, autonomous vehicles. What it will change is perhaps how cars are used and how many cars are on the road. And that mm -hmm. might then in turn infect the, uh, but you know, the driving miles are still the same. And so the amount of uh, energy uh, storage and energy delivered is still going to be you know, roughly the same. And uh, it'll, the, the big impact will be utilization. So a battery is used more often uh, then you may not need, need quite as many batteries uh, uh, you know, on the road. You won't have a battery sitting in a garage for you know, 23 hours a day. Um, instead, you'll have that battery out there being used more often. But really, the, the, the energy usage will largely be the same or, or, or greater as people drive more miles. Excellent. And, for the battery world, that's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I think I really hope all my subscribers follow this story. I'm going to be following it closely. I'm not a shareholder. I have no, I'm just, I'm wanted to talk to you because I love, you know, hearing your take on the electric vehicle industry. Um, but I think, you know, this is, I'm, I'm looking at your investment chart here, the cathode 22% of the battery, you know, I'm looking at this and I think there's this battery business is like very small today, getting to billions and tens of billions in the future. And the companies that can bring a better performance with a cheaper cost to, you know, something like the cathode is a multi-billion dollar opportunity. I think that is the surface level sort of investment thesis is that if you guys have, you know, a key technology here that hits mainstream, uh, you know, I think the stock price will take care of itself. So that's why I think this is a very interesting and compelling story to watch. So I'm going to be following it super closely. Can't wait to see the progress on the commercialization, all that. Um, if you have any last sort of things, you know, where we can follow Nano One or anything you'd like to say uh, before signing off, go for it. You know, we've got, uh, we're, 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 uh, we're always trying to put out news and, and I encourage people to come to our website, sign up for our, our, uh, our newsletters and, and you'll be able to follow what the company does. Uh, we're, we're, as a public company, we, uh, we're very busy trying to, uh, to, generate, uh, to generate news and actually bring people updates on what we're doing. So uh, you'll be able to follow us quite closely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for tuning in, everybody, and uh, really appreciate it, Dan. All right. Peace. Yeah, you too. Thank you.